0: Welcome to the Fallon Forum. It's Ed Fallon, your host here as we broadcast from sunny Des Moines, Iowa at the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Hey, so a quick shout-out to some of our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Also, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been taking care of creatures, large and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And to Ritual Cafe, where, where let's see, um, they've got Fairtrade tea, they've got Fairtrade coffee, they've got an all-vegetarian menu. They're pretty unique, folks. That's Ritual Cafe, located between, thir- between uh, Locust and Grand on 13th and downtown Des Moines. Also, thanks to uh, Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, Located on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at excellent prices with friendly, helpful service. That's a Cinco de Mayo restaurant. Yeah, and here it is, El Sais de Mayo. And in the studio with me, Dr. Charles Goldman. Uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking about some of the um, big business bailouts and how maybe that's the real socialism in America today. We'll also talk about how Obamacare is on life support. But first, we've got to take a look at Joe Biden. Uh, Biden uh, launched his campaign last week, and that included um, four stops in Iowa. And uh, at the first three stops, he barely mentioned climate change. Now, I, I would say we want to look at the the entire scheme here, but I want to talk in detail about climate. But just to, Charles, just to kind of look at the, um, the, the overall Biden rollout. I mean, lots of media hype, mm-hmm. uh, lots of public interest. I mean, all of his events were packed. Of course, they had small venues. That helps. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And Biden, an eloquent speaker as always. (laughs) Well,
1: you know, we were talking about this before the show. And um, Joe Biden, who has failed at multiple attempts to to get the nomination previously, um, I would assume is making his final attempt. At the presidential nom- the Democratic presidential nomination, and he's he's immediately dubbed the frontrunner by the lamestream media, right, uh, <laughs> including you know uh, the channels that I guess a lot of the Democratic leaning people would watch, MSNBC, CNN, um, and you know it's just hard. He's very likable, it, personally likable. But when you look at what he has supported in the past, um, such
0: as, give me some examples here. Uh,
1: you know, he comes from Delaware, where you know every other credit card company is headquartered, <laughs> other than South Dakota. Um, <laughs> so, in that sense, very favorable to the financial interests. Uh, bailout. Uh, you know, he proved that the bailout.
0: Uh, well, he would argue there he's just doing the interests of his constituents. I understand that. Right. I understand
1: that. But the point of the Senate is to step above the interests of your consist, uh, constituents to you know, try to have a national view. I never uh, heard
0: anybody run on that platform. No, I understand <laughs>
1: that. Um, you know, he obviously – the Anita Hill issue – uh, it's hard. It's going to be Anita hard. Anita Hill. To get How by. many people
0: remember Anita Hill?
1: Well, enough people did that that he felt necessary to try to call her up ahead of time to see if he could sort of make amends. Right. Uh, I know he's her. got
0: some baggage for his uh, stand on the uh, criminal justice bill. Correct. He, in, he was, what year was that? Nin- 1990 nin- something or so something?
1: So in the mid 1990s, yeah. he voted for the Iraq War. Um, you know, if he were running for vice president again, I'd have no problem. But if he's running for president, It's just more of the same. It's the same consultants for the Democratic Party saying, well, this is what the people who make up most of the Democratic electorate want. And as I said to you, I think the Democrats should run a campaign similar to President Trump. You've got you've got two. <laughs> you mean with lies and deception? Well no, I'm not saying I'm not saying <laughs> the strategy, if, oh, there, the strategy. If, if we could call Minus it the if deception. Could, okay. if, Right, if we could call it one. <laughs> I mean the strategy of 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 President Trump is that all he needs to do is hold on to what he has. His entire presidency has been about appealing to the base. So the irony is, is that I'm not sure what the lesson the Democrats get from the fact that the President won the election by 70,000 votes in three states. A total of 70,000 70, votes, votes in three states. You're talking about
0: President Trump. That's correct. Right.
1: And I call him the president. He is the president. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> however I may feel about it. Um, so if, if we're going to run a centrist Democrat, again we're just looking to hold on to the same people who voted for Hillary. What's going to make people come out and vote? What's going to make 100,000 people come out and vote in key states to hand the election to the and, Democrats,
0: and, and Biden's campaign's uh, uh, you know, supporters would argue that well, working Joe, working class Joe, is going to appeal to the voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, those Rust Belt states that went with Trump because of the vast drop in the number of jobs. That's what they're going to argue. Well, no, I know that's their
1: argument because he's, you know, he's union Joe. The first, the first big, uh, you know, campaign stop was. Getting the endorsement of the firefighters, firefighters union, union. Yeah. which was then followed by an immediate fundraising dinner, <laughs> you know, from wealthy Democratic donors. <laughs> well, and what that 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 was a and remember that they was landed a, big, a lot of money, too. right? And that was a big issue with Hillary. Remember, that Hillary was getting four hundred thousand dollars for talking an hour to you know various scions of Wall Street. Yeah, and you know, I think that does undercut the legitimacy of what they're. Um, Trying to do now, interestingly, Sanders of course had the the issue of not initially wanting to you know allow his taxes to be public, but of course, given the position of the Democratic Party on the president's taxes, I mean, this would have been a horrendous mistake on the part of Sanders, right? You know, and you know, so just like we asked for the president, what's he hiding? So what was Sanders hiding? That he makes he made money on his book, and that he's not a member of the proletariat necessarily. What is it like to make money on a book? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, so – but, you know, ultimately the question is, so what? That doesn't mean that he can't come out and say that this is what he believes we should do, that income inequality is an issue. I mean it's no different than Warren Buffett, right? Warren Buffett is one of the richest, if not the richest man in the world – no, and no, he,
0: no, not Jeff Bezos. Oh, uh, Bezos, okay.
1: Bezos. I mean, both of them are identified as being pretty much progressives slash liberals to some degree. Well, except when it affects their bottom line. However, but, <laughs> yeah. but for things like, let's say, the issue of the wealth tax or the death taxes, unfortunately. we yeah, allow When, when it comes to, to solar
0: energy, uh, you know, Warren Buffett is all over trying to trample down any, any well, because small his scale ra- to Well, because his,
1: his railroads move coal.
0: And because he owns, right, he owns yeah, winds. Then, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly, controlling wins, right? So, yeah. But so you know, back to Biden though. I mean, here's here's a guy. I, I, I take I take objection to only one thing you said, Charles, and that's the word centrist. I I don't see Biden as a centrist. I see him as a corporatist. He's very very comfortable with the corporate establishment that Americans across the political spectrum have come to reject, and that's a deal killer. I think that's going to be. Really difficult uh, in a general election. Well, I think – Despite the argument that, hey, Working Joe is going to appeal to voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, I don't, I don't think the analysts who are pro-Biden are looking deeply enough into it to understand how that's going to play out with all these other problems he's had.
1: Well, and, and again, it, it, it's, it's the Democratic Party doing what it always does, being led by the nose by its consultants – basically tell them the same thing from cycle to cycle so, even though all they do is lose.
0: Yeah. So at what point do Democrats actually figure this out? I mean, you would think they would have figured it out maybe 20 years ago. I don't know. You know, I know. It it just, mean, good, it just keeps going. It's a good question because
1: the, you know, the, the big thing the Democrats are saying is that there's a demographic, a demographic shift that should help them. Um and that usually means that they're talking about the Hispanic voters. But we've talked about this before. They need to appeal to Asian Americans also, who tend Democratic, but could certainly vote and be motivated to vote in higher numbers, and and young people, you know, we we know that as much as we talk about, you know, the, the millennials, they're one of the lowest participation groups in terms of voting, but they are the biggest demographic group right, right now, and
0: they're they're passionately concerned about cl- the climate crisis.
1: That's right, and I and, think that's one that's one element where and, and, you know your your focus, your, you know, bold Iowa's focus, on trying to get the democrat candidates to be more committed
0: and well, pushing yeah. it up on their priority yeah. list is right right to get to get them to be more committed to it but also to get them to really tell us where they stand and the uh the bold climate penguins and charles by the way you know Short little guy like you, you'd look great in a penguin uh, penguin outfit. I really, I really think that's your calling. Penguin outfit is in your future, man. I see it. I see it. All right. So anyway, but there are six penguins standing in front of Biden. I mean, right in front of Biden with mm-hmm. "Climate Is a Crisis" signs, and he talks a lot more about climate than he has in Cedar Rapids, Dubuque, Iowa City, and and then he just keeps going. He, he talks about gas, uh, millions and millions of miles of gas pipelines that are leaking methane. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I don't quite know how that fits in. I understand a little bit. But (laughs) then he talks about wooden pipes, wooden pipes that are transporting water. And he says, and it's bad. And I have no idea what he's talking about.
1: I I don't know where that would have come from.
0: But then, I mean, the real killer is what he says after that. He says, North America, this is a direct quote, North America is now energy independent. It's not the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. It's not Nicaragua, which of course is ranks last in oil production. I don't know what he's talking about. He must have been talking about Venezuela. Then he goes on to say it's not somewhere in South America, it's not Africa. It's the United States of America, Canada, and Mexico. And the United States is soon going to be the largest producer of energy, read oil, of any nation in the world by the end of the twenty twenties. My lord what are we so afraid of? <laughs> That's his quote, which is not just a little bizarre, but also, I think, honest. It's where he's really coming from, because what he's saying there is not at all inconsistent than what he and Obama accomplished as president, you know, making America, you know, on on the pathway right now to being the biggest oil producer in the world. Right. I mean, you know, I know Obama gets lots of credit for, you know, credit for. Um, Joining the Paris Climate Agreement, which really should have been a no-brainer, mm-hmm. um, he gets some credit for the clean uh, the, the clean power plan.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But meanwhile, he's approving offshore oil drilling. He's refusing to take a stand on the Dakota Access Pipeline, and here he is boasting, <laughs> boasting about, you know, about um, about uh, making America the biggest oil. Pr- this is last November mm-hmm. in Texas. He boasted about making America the biggest oil producer in the world. So I think Biden. I think this is a, no, a non-starter for Biden at this point, especially among younger voters. Because again, millennials, more than anything, concerned about the climate crisis. They're not going to support a candidate that just came out and said, I'm, I love big oil. And that, that's basically what that says. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was,
1: I was watching um, a, a, a vice report um, that I'd recorded recorded um, about how the nature of work is going to change due to robotics, AI, and other things. And it's interesting to see who was interviewed on that show, um, not surprisingly Jeff Bezos from Amazon, but also people like Richard Haass from the Council of Foreign Relations. And the point is, is that on both sides of the um, political spectrum, people who have expertise are saying, we need a, a political system that is going to deal with the fact that we can't keep giving people the same jobs as they've had for the last 50 years. and. The fear of changing over, and I've said this before: if we link the Green New Deal to a coherent, future-oriented economic and jobs policy, that's a winner. And, and yeah. contrasting, which it, is what they're right, and contrasting the, it to, and not getting, not having to defend that we, we we're going to protect against cow farts, okay, on the Green New Deal, um, so talk about the fact that we need to transform this economy and we need to find a way to take care of people who are being displaced
0: because we need to move to new energy sources. And the Green New and, Deal does that. I mean, again, the resolution as presented lays out a framework whereby that might happen. I, I understand it's, that, it's, that it's a framework. Right. But it was, it,
1: to me, it was a bit too confrontational, too prescriptive. And I think that what we need to do is, again, have somebody out there Putting it all together, we're going to spend supposedly $2 trillion on infrastructure, of course, which we never will because where's the money going to come from? But what are we going to do? Rebuild roads that were built in the 1950s. We're going to rebuild the interstate highway system. That's just going backwards. That's no different than trying to prop up coal. You know, we need somebody who can get out there and talk a coherent jobs program that also will address the future needs of people our children so they can live on a planet that's going to be you know livable yeah. in the future and i agree with you a bunch of 70 year old guys talking about this or not talking about this in the case of biden is not going to stimulate it young to come like and us. And still in
0: their sixties. That's right.
1: No, I mean, I, I just it, this, this needs to be part of a coherent view of reorienting us away from industries that have been. And I know, I know that you know Andrew Yang has said some crazy things about climate change.
0: Well, he wants to pack dirt around glaciers right, to right. keep them from melting. But, ah. but
1: Yang has the right idea in the sense of this notion of a guaranteed minimum income to every adult in the United States is is about. It, it, it's not meant to be a
0: long-term policy. It's meant to be a policy that will allow people to be, as they say, reskilled. Burrus yeah. my my problem with that is uh, the the guaranteed annual income could become a replacement for a job, and I think people mean need mean, oh, we don't, we don't really? just, yeah, we don't just need an income. We need meaningful work. I mean, but say, but the point is, is
1: that if you tell a worker on the Toyota line, you know, somewhere, I guess where is it, Kentucky, I think that they're going to have to be reskilled. They need to do that on their own time after their shift because they can't stop getting paid sure, from Toyota. The, you know, the point is, is that offering people a backbone of a guaranteed income allows them to make changes in sure, their and body. It's, again, a thousand, and you know what the other part of up? that is? The other part of that is having health insurance. Right. The two parts right, of right. things that keep people in place doing the same jobs they've been doing for decades and therefore defending industries that they've been in for decades is the fact that they don't have any income if they decide to try to make a reskill move, and they don't have any health insurance for their families.
0: Okay. Hey, so, so back to Biden before we sure. got to run to a break. I mean, beyond his climate problem, and again, I, I think, I think what he has said on climate in Des Moines is a, is a deal breaker for enough people where we're not going to we're going to see his numbers drop. I I, I, don't, I don't see him rising to the top uh, or continuing to stay at the top. I see him falling. And this will be his third strike, and he'll be out. But um, again, I don't know for sure. But that's my take on it because I know how important climate has become, not just among millennials, but among caucus goers and primary voters, uh, Democratic primary voters in general. But the other thing is, he just, um, he just, you know, and you, you made made a reference to him being just, just uh, advanced in years, and and um, you know, just kind of spouting the same old rhetoric and. uh, but there seems to be a, a disconnect, though. I mean, I mean he's, he's really good about working a crowd. Mm-hmm. But then when he starts saying stuff that's off script, it's not making any sense. It's not making any sense. And I, I think that's uh, – I mean, you hear some of these other candidates, and even if you might disagree with them, you know what they're talking about. I mean, with some, some of what Biden was saying, I just didn't know what the heck he was talking about.
1: Well, it made no sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have a chance to see the video of this, you know, encounter with him. Um, maybe he was thrown off by
0: the penguins. <laughs> well, I think he probably was, but uh, but again, you know, he's probably I, sitting up there thinking, "What do penguins have to do with this?" <laughs> <laughs> well, we did we did make the point that the second largest colony of emperor penguins just collapsed in the Antarctic, which That's, is which right. is horrible and tragic. I mean, they they had three years in a row where there was not enough ice for them to ice for them to uh, you know breed and raise their chicks, mm-hmm. and they just they just died. Or some of them moved off to another colony. But, you know, it's life in the, life in the Antarctic is not looking good for a lot of species. Well, life so, in general on Earth is not looking good for a lot of species. Right. Which is why, again, more important than ever, it's, it's this uh, the, the candidate that, that comes out of this primary. And, I, you know, honestly, I'd love to see a candidate on the Republican side. And, and we, we may have one. Maybe, maybe Weld will step forward. Maybe some other Republican will step forward. I'd love to see someone start challenging Trump on climate because climate denial is no longer – any even remotely viable position. And I know there are more and more Republicans who are not afraid to say that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, maybe that will happen and we'll we'll have a vibrant debate on both sides of the political aisle regarding climate. Well, my greater fear is that instead of talking about climate
1: change and maybe foreign policy, income inequality, we're going to do the usual things we talk about. We're going to talk about third trimester abortion. You know, and other social issues. That while I don't doubt their importance to certain people in this country, they're not existential threats. Right. to this to our survival. Yeah.
0: and and there will be there will be Republicans who push the debate in that direction, and there will be Democrats who push the debate in other directions that are also not that, that don't challenge us on the existential threat of climate change or the most pressing issues because it generates some fire among the base. And those of us who prefer to think for a living need to push back against that.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think the other thing we have to, to be wary of is putting too much stock in what what's going on on Twitter. Yeah. You know, as as has uh, come out multiple times in the last couple of weeks, it turns out that, you know, 10 percent of the people on Twitter account for like 70 percent of the content on Twitter. And, and – And among that, Donald Trump accounts for half of it. <laughs> well, but the point being that the – the Twitter Democrat is not the party.
0: Right. Hey, folks, we got to go to a short break here. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to reflect back on the uh, 2008 Big Bank bailout because uh, there's some stuff to catch up on about that. And it brings into focus the whole question of what is the real socialism in America? Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gailey Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted, prepared foods, artisan baked goods,
2: For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's
3: 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of
2: your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sergeant's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust sergeants to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149.
3: It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers.
2: Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here with Dr. Charles Goldman. Uh, thanks to the folks here at Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Uh, that's our host studio. And thanks to the uh, stations around Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. Later in the show, we're going to talk about Obamacare on life support. And appropriately, Charles is here with his medical scrubs on to help us <laughs> analyze that. Well, First off, we're going to analyze a different situation. The, uh, the use of the word socialism... But specifically how it relates to the big bank bailouts of the, of the financial crash of 2008. Charles, so, what the heck? So, I, <laughs> you know, um, I think that when the
1: Republicans are talking about socialism, they want people to think of – and socialism by definition is uh, public ownership of large corporate entities, you know, nationalized industries – and i guess is, the, is
0: that socialism or communism
1: no that is well communism is a political system in many ways socialism is is a economic system which can subsist with democracy or, or communism or whatever other political system you choose and you know i mean i i understand that what marx said was that it was worker well i i, I guess the difference between socialism and communism would be that marx was talking about worker ownership of corporate entities, whereas, you know, we're talking about public slash perhaps governmental. Own. Right.
0: state owning it, yeah. Right.
1: Or you have, can have a merger of the state and the government, which is what we have now, and we can just call that fascism. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I kind think – of the chase, Charles. Right. So I, I think, first of all, the use of the word socialism is doing just exactly what you asked, which is trying to engender in the minds of people who grew up in the 1950s and the 1960s that communism equals socialism. Uh, for the people who don't remember that you know those times for because they weren't born yet um there you know venezuela would be seen as a failed socialist state that's you know now obviously look at the disarray that's going on down there but the real question is it, has that ever been the case in the united states the two the two episodes where the government truly stepped in and saved capitalism and the capitalists <laughs> are the two things the republicans hate the most the new deal right uh, three I'm sorry, there's three entities, probably New Deal, the great society, and now the you know the uh, government programs that helped end the financial crisis in two thousand and eight now in two thousand eight, Democrats were handed a disaster when they when Obama took over the presidency right. on the other hand, they supported the same system of of corporate socialism and just you know the reason I wanted to bring this up was to give you know some some numbers as to the scope of what happened so you understand how much money it cost the American taxpayer to affect the uh, bringing back of these banks and also some of the fantasies that were put out there in books like you know Ben Bernanke's The Courage to Act and <laughs> Tim Geithner's Stress Test um, and probably the best person to, to look at who's been writing on this is Matt Taibbi who's written on the bailout, right. For since 2006, you know, as he, as he became aware, along with, like Michael Lewis, that this had to unravel. The mortgage thing had to unravel. So, you know, some of the things that we know that are out there was that uh, the bailout, in terms of like TARP, which was you know the program to save uh, the mortgage lenders, was about 500 billion dollars by itself. Um, and if you add in uh, the direct bailout of AIG, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and automobile—the automobile, automobile bailout—that's another six hundred billion dollars. <laughs> All right, so we're already over a trillion right. right there.
0: That's a lot. That's a lot of socialism.
1: Right now, interestingly, um, the real bailout outlay has been estimated by Bloomberg, for instance, in terms of the secret Fed lending that went into this. We'll talk about that in a minute as $7 to $8 trillion and another institute at Bard College, including the guarantees, said it was actually $30 trillion. Mm. That's about as socialist as you can get because that's money that is coming out of the hands of the Fed, of the Fed, of the taxpayers, somewhat directly as well as indirectly through the Fed. Now, one of the things that the the supporters of the bailout argue is, well, community banks also got, you know, community banks, the ones like In your little small town, also got bailed out. Well, that's true to some extent. 700 banks were bailed out. Uh, That's 10% of the banking industry. However, there's only 13 – at the time, there were only 13 big banks, and 12 of them received uh, about 60% of the bailout money. (laughs) Okay. Remember, these are the smartest people in the room, Right the 12 biggest banks in the country
0: right and they know how to they know how to leverage their- they know how
1: to leverage their yeah. political power and they were risking failing within a week or two six banks JP Morgan Chase Bank of America Citigroup Wells Fargo Goldman Sachs Morgan Stanley why are these companies still in existence were're getting 63 percent of the average daily borrowing from the Fed
0: yeah
1: Citigroup was taking a hundred billion dollars.
0: stay afloat. You know, you would think this would be an easy response. Oh, socialism? Yeah, here's socialism. This is totally socialism because all you free market capitalists
1: out there, there's only one thing that should have happened to these banks. They should have gone under. Failure. Right. You have to wring out the malinvestment. But
0: they were too big to fail, Charles. What's wrong with you?
1: Well, and interestingly, what was the end result of bailing out these banks? (laughs) Okay, one thing was we made them whole again. Okay, you own garbage securities. Why would anybody pay you more than five cents on the dollar? How much did we pay these banks to make them whole again? 90%, Ninety percent. Ninety cents on the dollar. They made money on the
0: bailout. Correct. They, they, they weren't just saved from collapse, they made money on it. Right. And what happened? Well, now the 12 largest banks
1: control seventy percent of the financial assets of the United States.
0: Uh, up, up from what before the bailout? No, about a half. So they, they gained another 20 percent
1: of – Well, no, they gained another 30 okay. percent or more gotcha. of gotcha. the assets – of bank assets in the United States, which, of course, means what happened? Community banks and community credit unions failed, mm-hmm. right, or got consolidated. Uh, you know, what other things do we do for them? Oh, we banned short selling of the stocks. That's a – you know, that's another okay. gift Expl- of –
0: Explain that a bit for our listeners.
1: Well, so essentially, if you believe a stock is going to go down, you borrow stock from a brokerage firm. And then you wait for the price to go down to buy it up, and now you have a profit, Hmm. right? Right. Okay. So what happened by banning short selling? Goldman Sachs stock goes up 30%. Who gets that money? Taxpayers see any of that money? (laughs) Did the worker see any of that money? No, of course not. Um, Then, of course, the Fed started paying interest on reserves that they were holding for these banks, Essentially, they were paying banks to be banks, right? They have to hold these reserves because that's what happened. They told them they had, to, they had to increase their reserves against failure. So they started hoarding cash. So supposedly, what was the reason that we were bailing out these banks? Because lending was frozen, right? Well, you start paying interest at the Fed on the, on the reserves that the Fed is holding. What do you think happens? $2 trillion disappear from the economy, and they end up at, at you know in, in a Fed account.
0: But this that, but, well they disappear from one from one one place in the economy but well they go nowhere they're sitting they're, they're sitting dormant right they're being paid
1: interest on this money that they have to hold right this is the way it works here and this is I'm not this is not about the republicans this is about the democrats and the republicans this goes back to what you're saying
0: so what about the, what about the Dodd Frank bill how do you feel about that's that that legislation's impact on the uh, on the, the scandal uh
1: the business, you know, the the industry has systematically tried to minimize the effect of that.
0: Well, and now, they, over now time. they want to repeal
1: it, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. Well, or, I do, mean,
0: or do you say, yeah.
1: they, okay. and they've already made changes to it that have once again um, set up a situation that many people feel it is not unlike where we were in the early 2000s.
0: But uh, again, what what do the big banks have to fear? You know, they they get to the point of being. That they get to the verge of failure again, and then they'll get bailed out again. Exactly. So. And in fact,
1: we've removed all moral hazard. In other words, banks used to just be banks. They made conservative investments for a steady return, and then they turned into gambling houses, you know, and, and they destroyed the economy. And they took trillions, tens of trillions of dollars of value out of our economy and who knows how many trillions out of the world economy. And those people still sit in those positions of power and that money is your or get, money
0: or get appointed to high positions within the government <laughs> yeah of course we
1: know and and uh, and that's why i'm saying obama is just as guilty of it as president trump mm-hmm. it's the same people rotating through and you know what they use the same argument that Do- that donald trump used he should be the one who's president and figure out how to set up a tax plan
0: because who knows better than him how to avoid taxes? <laughs> That's what he literally said if you remember during the <laughs> right, right, debates. Right, right. But so, of course we, don't, we can't verify that because we'll never see his tax return. Right. Well, except we'll, well, we'll to, eventually, we'll yeah, eventually not, see will eventually see. Now that he's returns. not going to be allowed to be on the ballot in a few states like Illinois. <laughs> maybe, well, unfortunately <well, laughs> they're all democratic states it. which they were probably yeah. seeding anyway. Well, but he, um, but he yeah. I guess, I guess he'd lose the primary there. Well, I mean, because presumably, if he does get a Republican opponent, that opponent would release his or her tax return and automatically win Illinois. And I, I, don't, I don't know what I can't remember what other states have done the same thing. But yeah, I,
1: I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's New York and a couple of others that are going to do it. But it, it it sounds good, but I don't think it will affect the results.
0: All right. Hey, we're going to take a short break here again, folks. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about uh, health care. And how, according to our resident physician, Dr. Charles Goldman, Obamacare is on life support. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Welcome back, folks. This is Ed Fallon broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Also the crossroads for about a zillion presidential candidates. I think we've already had... 70 or 80 candidate events here uh-huh. uh, just just in the past month or so. It's, it's crazy. Well, the, the,
1: the Democratic number is up to 22, I believe. About to be 22. Or to about to be 22, because I think de Blasio is going to say uh, declare.
0: Let me take a second to thank some of our other local business partners. Thanks to Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. That's a, a great tax and accounting firm, folks. Community CPA and Associates. Also, thanks to Hawk Restaurant, in the East Village of Des Moines, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. They've also got a booth at the Farmer's Market in Des Moines, and they've got a Mother's Day uh, special coming up in a couple weeks. Thanks also to Sergeant's Garage at 6th and College in Des Moines. Uh, they've been operating on four generations of Fallon Mobiles, and they always give me a fair, an accurate diagnosis and a fair price every time. That's Sergeant's Garage. And thanks to diversity insurance located at fifteen forty one East Grand in Des Moines, all your insurance needs under one roof that's diversity insurance at fifteen forty one East Grand in Des Moines all right so um, Obamacare hasn't seen a lot of conversations in uh, recent year recent well recent days. I guess guess it gets talked about once in a while on the campaign trail by Democrats who want to either improve it or those who want to actually do something that makes more sense and go beyond it. There's some kind of version of Medicaid for all. But um, that's that's probably not a bad conversation to be having because according to our resident physician, Dr. Charles Goldman, Obamacare is on life support. Doctor, what is the prognosis?
1: Well, I think actually um, it, it probably will survive this event. But basically what happened was That in December of this year, um, a suit was brought before a hand-picked judge, Judge O'Connor, down in Texas, uh, known very conservative, uh, brought by Texas against the United States government. And basically what Texas argued was that since the mandate to pay has been zeroed out, um, you know, the personal mandate to have insurance – uh, has been zeroed out that essentially the law should no longer be considered constitutional because taking out that element of the law makes it unenforceable and unconstitutional based on the intent of the 2010 law.
0: But isn't that having it both ways because the the mandate was ruled unconstitutional? So now you're saying that because the mandate has been removed, that renders the whole thing unconstitutional? Well, it is, actually, that's a, that's a good question, Ed. Um, That's why they pay me the big bucks. Exactly. Oh, wait. Never mind. So
1: there there was an article about four months ago by two law professors, uh, one Jonathan Adler, the other Abby Gluck, who actually had put briefs in on both sides of the uh, uh, Obamacare cases that were brought brought before the Supreme Court. So these are – this is, again, this is bipartisan. And they were both appalled by this decision because, as you say, there is a notion of severability. That is – that a uh, a court does have to consider what happens to a statute when one part of it is struck down. However, the courts must leave the statute standing until or unless Congress makes it clear that they did not intend for this law to continue to exist without that provision. Now, the interesting thing is, is the mandate goes back to a 2010 law, and if you remember, the um, The 2017 Republican Congress, which, of course, was committed to trying to repeal Obamacare its entirety, was unable to do that. And the only thing they ended up doing in 2017
0: was zeroing out the mandate. It took away the most unpopular – well, actually, really the only unpopular part of the law. Right. I mean, you don't hear – you didn't hear other people objecting to um, the requirement to cover preexisting conditions or – The uh, you know making sure your kid up to age twenty six could stay on the plan
1: right and that's that's a good thing
0: (laughs) because the the question would be and political courage at its finest (laughs) right but the thing
1: the thing would be is you know a lot of people are saying well I care about Obamacare I don't have it but in point of fact a lot of those insured in employer plans actually get the benefit of the Obamacare regulations which is that just as you're pointing out you can keep your uh, children on up to age twenty six annual and lifetime limits have been removed from all policies, including employer sponsored. Um, and um, they forced a cap on out-of-pocket costs. So if you go back to the, the, the good old days the Republicans seem to think existed before the ACA, probably about the estimate by the Kaiser Foundation is that 52 million people would lose insurance because of pre- loss of pre-existing condition coverage or because they'd just be priced out of the market. So that's part and parcel of the great Republican health care plan that the President says he'll release after 2020. At that time, we'll probably also get President Nixon's plan for ending the war in Vietnam in 1968. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is is that it, th- this is important for everybody who has health insurance in this country. It's not just for people who are on the exchange. It's not just for people who get Medicaid, which of course also would now be underfunded in every, in every everywhere, including places like Iowa right. that's already having issues with its Medicaid. So what's going on right no, now? Because
0: it was privatized.
1: Well, yes, we, we Largely. let's not get into that. But the point is is that federal funding would drop for Medicaid as right. part of the repeal of right. the ACA.
0: You know, at what point do at what point does it become a bipartisan focus to admit that our health care system, which may have made sense after World War II to tie it with employment, uh, what, 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 what At what point do we start realizing it makes no sense to have this vast, uh, expensive middleman, the insurance industry, to tie it to a job so that you feel stuck in that job, you know, to pump all this? I mean, there's so much public money in healthcare already, you know, you would think we'd have better results. You know, it just uh, it, at some point, it just seems like you're going to hit a breaking moment where, OK, this is absolutely going to fail. We've got to redo the whole thing from the ground up. And at that point, you know, there's only one way to go. I mean, you can't I, – I, I guess you could repackage a failed experiment. Uh, but, uh, but really, uh, when every other nation in the world has an example that works, um, works better in terms of delivery, in terms of cost, again, I, I don't doubt that our physicians and our, uh, and our, and our medical science here is, is second to none. But it's not sustainable with these kinds of inhibitions of – of a, of a, of, a, of a, you know cost overruns, of prescription drugs through the roof, and of this this vast, you know this middle man, this insurance industry that is just gobbling up the, gobbling up the resources. There's my rant, Charles. Go well, for Well, <laughs>
1: uh, I I think that I agree with much of what you say, and you have to understand that, for instance, I trained in this in the late seventies, and did residency in the eighties, and at the time, Blue Cross Blue Shield were for the most part trade associations that had coalesced into these larger entities, and they were concerned with the consumer of their insurance, their you know, people who were registered with their insurance plan. They were not concerned with the shareholders of the insurers. The worst thing that ever happened to healthcare in the United States was, not, was the imposition of the supposed free market and making many of these large health insurers publicly financed through stock and then having Milton Friedman come out and say that the only people that should matter for a corporation are its shareholders. We've said this before on this show. Part of the ACA was to limit the, the health insurers to a 20% overhead.
0: 20 percent. 20 percent. With a with, with public fine. It's in the 3 to 4 percent, percent range.
1: Right. Now, on the other hand, I think it's fanciful and simplistic to argue that we can move from this system directly into a Medicare for all system. Well, but Obamacare was not a transition. Yeah, uh, no, I understand that. And Obamacare has it, many it, problems. But it was trying to do something within the limitations of the present system. I think the two things. I'd say it further entrenched it, in fact.
0: I mean, again, it did some good things while further entrenching the insurance-based health care system. Well, it, brought a, whole new, it,
1: it brought a whole new bunch of subscribers into the system, that's correct, yeah. who then had to pay for insurance. Which is why insurance companies went up them. the day Obamacare
0: was passed. Right.
1: The government paid these companies to take these patients. Right. And I, I, I think, again, even if you do want a, a Medicare-for-all type system, there has to be some sort of transition plan. You know, and the two things. Well, the one thing that probably has to happen is we need to deal with health insurance the way the Germans deal with health insurance, which is that the health insurers become regulated utilities. They can remain publicly finance. I mean, I'm sorry, privately financed if they want through the stock market. So like our like our, like, like our utilities are. That's yeah. correct, and that and their limitations on profit have to be less than twenty yeah. percent. It's just it's it's obscene. You mean on, on cost? Uh, well, they get a twenty percent overhead, which includes their profit. Oh, okay. And you know, so, so they'll, I, I don't, they'll have I, to learn I, to work with a little bit I, less you know, overhead. I
0: don't know if I agree with you. I don't. I don't know if the, the way out is to gradually uh, ease ourselves out of the current system. I, I think. I think there will be so much resistance to that. Why? So, well, because you, you've got you've got an amazing amount of money involved in a current a system that currently rewards. Big hospitals, big insurance companies, and big pharmaceutical companies. They, you know, if they, if they, if they if the goal is just to kind of find a way through all this while keeping that structure in place, you know, they're clever. They're going to find a way to make sure that nothing substantial changes, and that in the end, they come out with their profits and their structure intact.
1: But that means Medicare for all is even less likely to happen, because why? Is, why is it less likely? Because to they happen? play no role. What, what, how these people are going to see their? This is not any different than asking the oil companies to leave trillions of dollars of assets in the ground. Well, you have you, but, to have some transition plan. You can't just simply say to them, "It's wrong." This is what we're going to do.
0: Well, actually, no. You you can and you have to. Uh, and and with that, with that example, even more so than healthcare. In healthcare, we I'd like to see it fixed tomorrow, yesterday, in fact. Mm-hmm. But um, I know that it's not. It's an issue. It's a problem. It's a big problem, but climate. I mean, science is telling us we have to leave that stuff in the ground. I don't care if mobile, if ExxonMobil is going to lose some money because they didn't get to maximize all the extraction options they have. It's got to be left in the ground. That's, there's, there's not a, that's not a political statement. That's a scientific statement. I understand that.
1: But you can't simply go to the government and say, we want you to do this. You have to figure out ways to apply pressure and to make these entities part of the solution. Right. Now, and you, you can work on a pipe. For instance, working on pipelines is a sensible way of going about it. Keeping pipelines keeps those assets in the ground. They can't move them, right? They're worthless without being moved. So, I, I mean, that's a good strategy. But I think, in terms of healthcare, I'm not disagreeing with you. We need to, we need to fix the system here. And Obamacare was an incremental change. It basically just gave people coverage. It didn't change yeah. the structure.
0: I wouldn't even say it was incremental. I think it tweaked the current system in a few favorable ways. I, I don't think 50 million people having
1: coverage is, is a small tweak. There's only 300-something million people Well, in it the brought United more States. people into the existing system. But it gave people at least some coverage so they wouldn't be bankrupted yeah. by having a health problem. All I'm saying is I think you have to offer a, a path – and the path to me is Germany's overhead is half of that of the United States using that system. And it's, it's, it's in a country with a fair amount of heterogeneity racially, like ours. Um, and I think it, it, it's reasonable to consider that as a way out. of The present system is untenable. Right. And I'm saying that as a physician as well as a citizen. It's untenable. And I agree with you. And it needs to be part of a coherent change in which you finance medical education for people so they don't come out hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and having to make a lot of money. So
0: who's going to accomplish that, President Trump or one of, his, uh, the, one of, his, one of the Democrats running for president? Uh, is it, well, is it's, anyone, it's
1: fairly and, obvious that President Trump's not going to accomplish right, this. Right. It was a trick question. Right.
0: But is there a Democrat running that uh, might be able to accomplish that? It has the guts, the integrity, and the intelligence to do that and of course the congress willing uh,
1: to go I on mean with the it. one who, who comes to mind is the one who's already made it a much bigger issue than the rest of them and that's Bernie Sanders but he is again i think what he's putting forward is too politically simplistic to really address the problem or start the transition to a better system you know the other option would be put a public option out there to compete with the insurers so you'll be like the southwest airlines was used to be of the of the airlines industry, put out some competition, and, of course, you know, then that looks – unfortunately, that looks a bit more like socialism because the government has unlimited resources to compete.
0: And, again, we've already established that we don't like socialism except if it's for banks and uh, <laughs> right. other, uh, other big entities. Well, and, and look, uh, you know, unfortunately, the health insurers employ a lot of people. So you
1: can't just destroy the industry overnight, so I think you do right. have to look we, at we a, don't, don't a evolution. We don't want to
0: destroy the system. We want to, We want to, We want those just just like we want coal people working in coal mines to transition to other jobs, including the possibility of working on. Some renewable, renewable energy system or conservation, we also would like to see those workers. And industry.
1: so, where does the money come from to allow all these industries to reskill people?
0: Well, there's enough money in the system already. I mean, when it comes to health care. Okay, but let's, a lot let's, of money. let's
1: talk honestly. Okay, no wealth tax is going to generate that much money. There's only one place to look for it, the and military. that's taking away from the military. That's yeah. correct.
0: Yeah, well, uh, if you're a Ron Paul Republican, you wouldn't mind that. That's correct. I'm one. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> all right. Charles, thanks for joining us today. Uh, uh, back to the operating room? Uh, no. No. All right. Well, you're all dressed for it, so. <laughs> I'm ready for it in case
1: it happens. In That's case right. it happens, you're ready.
0: Okay. So, hey, folks, uh, thanks for tuning into today's uh, Fallon Forum. If you're listening uh, on our community owned stations, um, we will be uh we will be back uh shortly here after a break. Thanks to uh Charles for joining us today and thanks to uh the folks at Lorena 1260 AM 96.5 FM, thanks to our community owned stations around the country. Uh thanks to uh Juan Rodriguez the station manager, to uh, Sherry Hardina, my production assistant and to Ashley Martinez our producer for this program. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, Ed Fallon with you here. So until recently, there was only one candidate in the Democratic primary uh, for president who had made climate change the focal point of their campaign, and that was Washington Governor Jay Inslee. Well, that's changed. Uh, Texas uh, Former Texas Congressman uh, Beto O'Rourke just released a very detailed and progressive plan on how to attack climate change. And he's been stumping all over Iowa. This is encouraging. Again, voters will want to make sure that this is not just a, like a, a photo op, that he really means it. He really is starting to put this first and foremost. And also with Beto, there's some concern about money he took from fossil fuel interests in the past when he ran for the U.S. Senate. And also some votes he took when he was a member of the U.S. House. So those um, items of conversation will continue to pop up. But here is um, audio from Beto O'Rourke's climate forum in Des Moines on Monday, May 6. Uh, Channing Dutton was on the uh, panel that got to question uh, O'Rourke about uh, about some of the details of his plan. So you'll hear him addressing uh, addressing Channing in his response. Let's take a let's take a listen.
4: We're on track right now to warm, and Channing can correct me, but three or four or five degrees Celsius along this current trajectory unless we change course now. And the best science from the best scientists say that we have 10 years left to us as a human civilization within which to act. I want to make sure that we all understand the urgency of this moment and the choice that we're about to make. We, a week ago uh, today, released a plan to address this. It's the most ambitious plan to combat climate change, uh, certainly by a a presidential candidate, but uh, ever released in policy detail in this country. It it calls for, on day one of our administration, uh, cutting pollution dramatically. No new leases on federal lands or federally protected waterways. Ensuring that existing leases—that's for oil and gas exploration—ensuring that existing leases that are in effect today are changed to reflect the cost and price of pollution and of climate change. Making sure that we fully enforce the Kigali Agreement so that those greenhouse gases like hydrofluorocarbons, which are many thousands of times deadlier to this planet in terms of the greenhouse effect, are are zeroed out that we move on the EPA's rulemaking authority to to close the amount or reduce the amount of methane that is is being released right now, move forward with clean air standards, vehicle efficiency standards, renew the clean power plan and strengthen it um, that was canceled out by this administration and introduced by the last. Make sure that every single procurement decision in the federal government reflects the cost To the climate not just on the vehicles that we purchase and lease but the building materials that we use the cement the 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 concrete the steel and the very high carbon cost of how we manufacture and build today that that be reflected in in our public decisions and that by 2030 on federal lands we get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions that's on federal lands Second main pillar of this plan is that we mobilize five trillion dollars just over the next ten years To make sure that we build out the infrastructure that we need for Pacific Junction in every community next to the Missouri or the Mississippi River or next to the ocean those who are bearing the brunt of climate change today to protect human life and property we, we make sure that we invest in the research necessary uh, a spending level that is commensurate with the moonshot spending spent under the Kennedy administration to land a man on the moon, to make sure that our research agencies, akin to DARPA uh, and ARPA E, are investing in the next technologies for farming, for how we build things in, in this country, uh, and how we manufacture in a way that allows us to get to our climate goals. And those will be set by law to ensure that this country gets to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 and that we are halfway there by 2030, a legally enforceable mechanism, not just for some parts of this economy or country, but for every part of this economy and this country. And and then lastly, I want to make sure that we're investing in communities. That means some of the um, uh, infrastructure that I talked about, but pre-disaster mitigation For communities like davenport so that before the next flood hits we are ready those are significant investments that we need to make but i want to make sure that we marshal the resources of the federal government in order to make them Uh, we can address some of the housing challenges that we have so that people live closer to where they work do not have to travel as far and that housing is uh, affordable Uh, crop insurance for stored grains uh, having just been on the Sargent farm, I understand what that means to those farmers who have lost what they have stored, in part, perhaps, because they couldn't get it to market during these current trade wars and tariff battles and, and standoffs. Um, in in uh, a nutshell, as long as that may have sounded, there's a lot to it. That's the nutshell version of this. You ask a really good question. Is, is 2050 too late for the United States to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions in our plan. Uh, much of it calls for partnering with farmers, with local communities, and with states. We make it very clear, if we can exceed this goal, if there are others who want to push ahead and are able to marshal resources to match those marshaled at the federal level, we will get behind them with everything that we have. And, and 2050 has to be the the absolute backstop. Um, if, if we can achieve this uh, before that, we absolutely must. And as a farmer in West Burlington uh, reminded me, when she stood up at a meeting at an ethanol facility, and she said, "You know, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong about this climate change stuff, but I I don't, I don't want to have to bear the the price and the burden of this. Why does America have to do everything?" And you know, she she was really right that if China has three to four times the number of coal-fired plants, uh, as India continues to come online, as Africa continues to develop. Um, not only do we have to set the lead and be the model here, but we also have to then be able to convene the other countries of the planet to do their part as well. And so that's going to be part of this too. And not only rejoining uh, Paris and enforcing Kigali, but asking everybody else to do more and exceed 2050 if by, by any way possible that we can. I, I wanted to. Uh, Address one one, uh, issue Channing brought up. You you mentioned the the Department of Defense budget. Sure. You know, over $600 billion annually right now. We're we're fighting wars in Afghanistan, our 18th year. We've been 28 years uh, almost without pause in Iraq through six successive presidential administrations, Yemen, Somalia, so many other places right now. I remember, I believe it was during the Obama administration, where the Department of Defense uh, said that climate change was at the top of the list, or maybe their they're very you know, number one threat. And I really, over time, especially serving on the House Armed Services Committee, have begun to understand exactly how all well that is connected. Um, scientists have told us that, that the droughts that preceded the civil war in Syria were, were the greatest seen in, in that country, perhaps, in, in recorded history. Um, the competition for resources the fact that so many of our military installations have been overwhelmed by some of these natural-slash-human-caused uh, disasters, um, we're going to spend exponentially more unless we reduce the impact uh, from a national security perspective. So I love that you put it within, within that frame. We can continue to send more women and men overseas to fight these wars, or we can address some of the underlying challenges, to include climate, um, that caused these wars. To begin with, and, and part of the reason I really love the, the framing of the Green New Deal is, is it calls to mind um, the last major, almost existential challenge that we faced coming out of the Great Depression into World War II would the Western democracies survive? And and this country was able to marshal through our democracy, you know, the political will of hundreds of millions of our fellow Americans, um, harness uh, the capitalism to, to drive the innovation and the production and manufacturing. And, and then those those service members, uh, those young people, literally willing to risk, and so many cases, lose their lives to save this country, to make the world safe for democracy. Um, it, it's that kind of a challenge that we're talking about right now. So I, I made a note uh, about you comparing this to the DOP budget. I think that's a very apt um, comparison to make because th- this is the greatest challenge we have faced since then, the greatest challenge we, we have faced ever. And so, you know, to, to paraphrase President Kennedy, uh, you know, bear uh, any burden, pay any price. That's what the generations that follow us will want to know that we have done while we had the chance to do it. So, appreciate the way that you can place that. Well, let me just, let me just add one follow-up, and that is um, it is popular to be strong with the military. And it's difficult to lead in a different direction. But if we reduce that military expenditure from maybe 8 trillion to 11 trillion, and we took half trillion in each of these next 10 years, and we helped export the green solution across the planet to India, to our friends in China, to Central America, if if we just divert a portion of our excessive military budget, then TBI, then the experiments that we're conducting all across the country, on new energy, become a product for the United
2: States to export and lead, and answer the questions very popular in
4: India: You Americans, you burned all the oil, you put all the CO2 into the atmosphere to raise your standard of living, but you expect us to do nothing. And so I think we have to, as we clean our own house, I think we have to export that clean solution, or at least help the rest of. The and that's what leadership, I think, is about and I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and some country is going to provide that leadership. I'd much rather be in the United States of America. Um, we can pay uh, the cost of cleanup, uh, of repair, of replacement and relocation, or we can invest up front in the pre-mitigation uh investment and in changing the course that the planet is on right now to warm another four or five degrees where these disasters these deaths will pale in comparison to what we see so it's it's the very existence of of the people in in this country the generations that will follow us our homes our our communities that are at stake right now five trillion dollars mobilized over the next 10 years Um, is manageable by the wealthiest the most powerful country on the face of the planet. If we had $2 trillion uh, for tax cuts to to the wealthiest, to corporations already sitting on on piles of cash, then we have the resources literally to save the lives of our kids and our grandkids and those who follow. And as we just learned, uh, it's not all cost and sacrifice, the two fastest growing jobs Uh, not just in Iowa, but in the country today, are wind and solar energy jobs right now. They're creating value and purpose and function for people who are looking for work that pays a living wage so they don't have to work two, and three jobs. So I'm confident in this country's ability to innovate and to lead, uh, to do what no other country is is capable of doing. And that's got to be all of us coming together. So I'll continue to listen to people as I did here today in Iowa across the country to bring them into the conversation and into
0: the solution. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, Again, good progress being made. I think the more people go out there and question candidates about how urgent is climate change and how important it is that they don't just mention it as an issue that they actually prioritize it the more that that happens the more we're going to see this kind of progress like we've seen with Beto O'Rourke this week keep it going folks Ed Fallon here with you on the Fallon Forum